Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome, everyone. I am so excited for the guest that we have today because if anybody knows me, they know that I love, love, love true crime. I watch American Justice, A&E, all of those shows, the, the, the first 48 and, you know, we actually have someone who could talk to us a little bit about true crime and a little and it hits a little close to home because it's it's regarding nursing and we're regarding things that happen in the hospital. So, Sarah, please introduce our guest for today. Absolutely. And our guest today is really unique in the sense that he's not a healthcare professional, but he has a lot of intimate knowledge of healthcare professionals. And I really, truly think that his life could be made into a movie. It's already a book. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Bruce Sackman. He served as the special agent in charge, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, also known as VA, Office of the Inspector General, Criminal Investigations Division, Northeast Field Office until May 2005, when he retired after 32 years of service. In this capacity, he was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving VA from West Virginia to Maine. During his tenure, he was involved in hundreds of investigations involving allegations of fraud, corruption, false claims, thefts, patient assaults, pharmaceutical drug diversions, and suspicious hospital deaths. Bruce is a former self-employed licensed private investigator in New York City, specializing in healthcare-related matters. Under contract, he had directed major investigations for a large New York metropolitan regional healthcare system. He is co-author of the book, Behind the Murder Curtain, Special Agent Bruce Sackman hunts doctors and nurses who kill our veterans. Welcome, Bruce. We're so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you very much, and I'm very excited to be here. You know, I want to preface my remarks about, but before I begin about one thing, I have spent a career investigating what you might say is the dark side of medicine, okay, particularly... Mm -hmm doctors and nurses who murdered their patients. And when I say murdered their patients, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like a Dr. Kevorkian or somebody that's, you know, trying to just hasten the death of somebody who's suffering. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about murder, about doctors and nurses who actually murdered their patients. Now, when I was at the VA, you know, people say, how, well, how did you get into this line of work? You know, right. well, well, when I was at, at the VA, uh, I covered all 
the VA medical centers from West Virginia to Maine. And not only the medical centers, but the outpatient clinics and the regional offices. And I had this incredible, I like to call it a smorgasbord, if you will, of cases to pick and choose from. And these crimes are occur at all hospitals, not, not just at the VA hospital, but I had drug diversion cases. You know, I had nurses and doctors diverting drugs, sometimes for their own personal use and sometimes for just resale. And I had bribery cases on contractors who tried to bribe their way into hospitals. I had theft cases uh, involving medical equipment. I had a whole range of cases, but I never actually had a murder case at a VA hospital until one day I get a call from the chief of psychiatry at the VA Medical Center out of Northport, Long Island. And she says, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we have a physician working here and there's a news story that he actually spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. That's crazy. Now talk about bad medical credentialing, right? I mean, I didn't think... I didn't think in the United States of America or Canada or really just about anywhere else, you could spend time in prison for poisoning your coworkers, come out and be a physician again. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. And that's what started me down this path of investigating medical professionals who murder their patients. And from that case, went to another case, then cases throughout the United States, and then actually assisting in cases throughout the world. But it's something that I never actually planned or expected to get into. In fact, I never even heard of such a thing, to tell you the truth. Yeah, that yeah. that is so crazy, Bruce, because when we think about it, and we think about even entry to practice, so like nurses entry to practice practice physicians and entry to practice they make it so rigorous and even particularly for medical school it's actually really difficult and there now there's a variety of tests that they're trying to use because they know that you know the standard metrics of like MCAT and and GPA that's not going to cut it so they're trying to put in like behavioral based tests but how does someone for example like this gentleman that you were just mentioning how does someone like that pass all these tests to to now become a physician and like you said, murder patients. Like, how did that story all unfold? Well, it's it's quite a story. So this doctor's name was Dr. Michael Swango. When Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as Double O Swango, licensed to kill. <laughs> because it seemed like every time he visited patients, some of them would die unexpectedly. You know, and he actually got caught like forging some history and physicals that he didn't actually write. And they were very concerned. So they brought Michael Swango in front of a committee because they thought maybe he shouldn't be a doctor. And the committee, by one vote, actually said, no, we think he should be a doctor. Maybe he just needs some more training. More training. (laughs) So Michael Swango graduates. And he goes to Ohio State Medical uh, School, uh, University, Ohio State Medical University. And he's doing an internship there. And the same thing starts to happen. 
patients start expiring unexpectedly. There's one particular patient, her name was Cynthia McGee. Cynthia McGee was a gymnast at the university. She got in a car accident. She got hit by another student and she was actually improving in the hospital until she got a visit from Michael Swango. Then she died unexpectedly. But Michael Swango didn't get charged with that crime. The student who hit her with his car, he got charged with vehicular homicide. Unreal. Um, but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. Swango did. Well, all of a sudden, again, patients seem to be dying unexpectedly. And Ohio State University does an internal investigation, but they can't prove they don't have enough evidence to show that he actually harmed anybody. But they said, look, we don't want to keep him here anymore. So Swango voluntarily leaves. And he goes to what in some ways was his first love, being an EMT. And why did he love that? Because he loved the excitement of being an EMT. He loved to pull up in a, on a crash scene and see the bodies and see the blood. He really, really liked that. So one day he's uh, sitting around with his coworkers and he brings in some donuts for them. And the co then the coworkers eat the donuts and they go home and they're all sick. None of them are feeling well. And Swangle starts calling up and he says, tell me the symptoms. Tell me everything that happened to you. See, he's reliving the excitement of poisoning them twice. First, so by putting up. poison on, his do on their donuts which, by the way, was arsenic. And oh. the second time is calling them up and hearing how sick they were. Well, they can't figure out what happened. And about two weeks later, Swango comes in with some iced tea. But these EMTs were not stupid. They said, oh, okay, thank, thanks, Michael. Uh, we'll, we'll have some a little bit later. Right. <laughs> they, they take the iced tea and they have it tested and it's loaded with arsenic. Oh, my God. So they call the police. The police do a terrific investigation. It goes to trial. Michael Swango gets five years in jail for poisoning his coworkers. Well, that should be the last the medical community ever sees of Michael Swango, right? We think so, but... Wrong. Right. Wrong. Because... He gets out of jail early for good behavior because, you know, being a sociopath, he could really charm a snake, this guy. I mean, he's oh just God. incredible. So he gets out of jail and he changes his name and he bounces around a little bit. And to make a long story short, he's accepted again on the West Coast of the United States as a physician. And he's doing really well. In fact, he has a new girlfriend. All right. This girlfriend's name is Kristen Kenny, and they're getting along and Swango's working as a physician and everything is fine until all of a sudden the news story comes out that he had spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. Well, his fiance, she's having all these headaches and she's not really feeling well. So she leaves the West Coast. She breaks up from Michael. She returns home to Virginia and she's happy until all of a sudden Swango appears at the door. And she can't really say no to him. So next thing you know, the headaches are returning and all that. Well, Swango eventually leaves. 
And she's so upset about the whole thing with Swango that she goes to a park, she takes out a gun, and she blows her brains out. Oh, my God. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can. Because even though the family had cremated her body, they kept a lock of her hair. Oh, my God. We had the hair tested. It was loaded with arsenic. Yes, Swango was even poisoning his own fiance. I just got chills. Well, to make a long story somewhat longer, he winds up in my neighborhood at the Northport VA Medical Center when I got this call right. that he was working there. So I hop in a car and I take one of my agents and I go down and interview this guy. And he was a handsome, charming, articulate. You know, I always say if I didn't know better, I'd introduce him to my daughter. I mean, he's a handsome ex-Marine doctor. Right. If you brought him home, I'd go, wow, that's, that's terrific. And he was so calm and so cool. And then, then he's giving me this story, the same story he tells everybody. Well, you know, uh, Bruce, I was only in jail actually really for six months because oh being a tough ex-Marine, I got in a barroom brawl. But you know what? The governor of the state restored my civil rights. Here's a piece of paper. Here's a piece oh. of paper from the governor. He restored <laughs> my civil rights. I said, wow, that's really amazing, Michael. I mean, that that's terrific. You know, the, do you mind if I look around your room a little bit while I'm here? And that's when his attitude changed. <laughs> because when the police caught him, when he was an ENT, they looked around his room and he had all sorts of poisons and all books on poison in his room. Wow. So he wouldn't let me look in his room. Next thing you know, Michael Swango leaves the VA and he winds up in Zimbabwe, Africa. And when he's in Zimbabwe, Africa... He murders women and children and pregnant women and tried to poison his landlady. And he was about to actually move on to Saudi Arabia because they suspected Swango. Then they weren't stupid there. They suspected him of murdering patients, but they couldn't prove it at the time either. But before he could move on to Saudi Arabia, he had to return to the United States for some passport issues. So he returns to the United States. And that's when we arrest him, but not for murdering anybody because we didn't have evidence that he murdered anybody. Right. We actually arrested him for every federal agent's favorite crime, which is lying to the government, <laughs> lying to me about this barroom brawl, lying right. on his applications about this barroom brawl. So he gets sentenced and we have two years, a two-year window to try to show whether he had actually murdered any of the patients at the VA medical center. Right. Like I said, I had never done one of these cases before in my life. But my boss said, don't worry, Bruce, we're going to hook you up with the, the expert. Right. And then the expert, if, if you've ever seen the show Autopsy. Yes. <laughs> there's a, a forensic uh, pathologist, Michael Bodden. Wow. So Michael Bodden actually taught me how to do these cases, which is like learning Amazing. physics from Albert Einstein. Oh, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So how do we do this? How, how do we begin? He says, well, Bruce, first thing we're going to do is we're going to um, collect every medical record of every patient at 
the uh, VA in Northport, Long Island during the time Swango was there, which was only a couple of months. Okay. Right. And then we're going to assemble this team. And this team is going to consist of investigators and it's going to consist of himself as the forensic pathologist and a toxicologist, of course, to do the tox work. And at that time, a relatively new profession called forensic nursing. And these nurses were phenomenal. They were phenomenal because they understood not only the science, but they understood the hospital administration and the politics, and they were just terrific. What a tremendous help. And, you know, many times we talk about, we think about forensic nurses, we think about them when it just comes to sexual assault cases. Right. But that is too limiting. I always preach to the police. There's this tremendous resource out there called forensic nursing, nurses that are trained in both forensic science and nursing science. Couldn't have made one of these cases without that. Absolutely. Even with the pathologist and the toxicologist and this ologist and that ologist, <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. They were the best. They were the terrific. So we narrowed it down to about five cases that we thought, based on the chart review, that these patients should not have expired when they did. Now, when you looked at the death certificates, what do all the death certificates say? Myocardial infarction, you know, some heart ailment. They all say the same thing. Right. And the interesting thing about these five patients is that death was unexpected both to the family and the staff. And you know, as part of the staff, the staff really kind of knows when a patient is going yeah. to expire. You know, death is not totally unexpected. In these cases, the patients were actually improving. So the family would go out on vacation only to get a phone call from Dr. Swango, who would in great detail go over the last 30 minutes of their life so he could enjoy not only first murdering them, but sort of torturing the family as well by going into the great details how dad had suffered during the last half hour or so of, of his life. So we narrowed it down to these five cases. And then the next thing we had to do was exhume the bodies. Right. I've never done anything like this before. And I find myself in a cemetery with a backhoe and they're digging up the ground and they're pulling the coffin out of the ground and they're opening up the coffin. Jeez. You know, I mean, this is a little bit of a culture shock for right. someone who's never done anything like this. Then I find myself in the morgue and next thing you know, you're opening the body and Michael Bonin is showing me the heart and he says, you see, Bruce, there's nothing wrong with his heart. This guy didn't have heart disease. You know, this, these, these death certificates are, are absolutely incorrect. So now Swango is about to get out of jail. And he thinks he's just going to hop on a plane and go to Saudi Arabia. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Because not only now will we be able to prove that these deaths were a result of homicide and the murder weapons, by the way, we determined were epinephrine, you know, which is adrenaline, yeah. and succinylcholine, you know, which is a paralytic. 
And as you know, either one of them could kill you very easily. And we found traces of these substances in patients where there should have never been traces of these substances at all. All right. But we really got lucky because at the same time, the government of Zimbabwe signed an extradition treaty with the United States. So we said to Swango when he got out of jail, look, if we go to trial and even if we lose, all we're going to do is put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac (laughs) in Zimbabwe. And there's an arrest warrant for you. Right. Charging you with the murder of a number of citizens of that country, men, women, and pregnant women. Oh, my God. So he decided very quickly to plead guilty. And he did plead guilty. And he got sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And now he's in Supermax Federal Penitentiary in Florence, Colorado. The interesting thing, though, is that was at the sentencing. And, you know, at the sentencing, the families are there. Right. And the families get to talk about dad, you know, how he was in the VA hospital, how he survived the war, only to be murdered at, at, at a VA hospital. And Swangle didn't flinch at all didn't flinch at all. And then the judge asked Swango to stand up and say in his own words what happened. And Swango said, yeah, I murdered these people. I used a paralytic. He stood up like a like an ex-Marine at attention. Didn't, didn't flinch at all. Because medical serial killers, they don't care about the patients. It's what the excitement of the kill does for them. Not the patients. They couldn't care less about the patients. And I've seen that throughout the world. And then the judge said something to Swango I had never heard before. He said, Dr. Swango, he says, I'm sentencing you to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. If, however, Congress should change the law and grant parole, your parole is denied in advance. Oh, my God. So he couldn't even get out if Congress had changed the law. Now, after that case... Because I had made one case, one case. Now all of a sudden I'm the expert (laughs) because I made one case, all right? Because no one else had made a case. And then I found myself moving on to a nurse in Massachusetts, Kristen Gilbert, and a nurse uh, at the Harry S. Truman Medical Center in Missouri, and another doctor uh, up in Albany, New York, and then helping police departments all over the world. But it's all because of that Swango. But you know, the one good thing to come about Swango is that it improved medical credentialing tremendously. Right. Because nobody wanted another Michael Swango working at their hospital. So medical credentialing improved dramatically, but apparently, based on what we've seen recently in Canada, you can still kind of slip through the cracks particularly during a pandemic when um, there's such a shortage of medical professionals, you know, that we might kind of overlook uh, some of the steps that we take just to get somebody on board fast. There is one case in Germany ongoing now, in fact, about a doctor who allegedly murdered two of his COVID patients. Oh, my God. 
So we'll we'll see what happens with that. Wow, that is so interesting. I think that what you just told us could have been a movie all in itself. And I'm sure what you had to go through to pin this guy down was nothing short of amazing. Like, I'm just so impressed with everything you had to do. I'm just wondering if you could touch on what your thoughts are on how common it is to have medical serial killers, whether they be nurses, doctors, or other healthcare professionals that are around at any given time? Like, like, what are your thoughts on that? It, it almost goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals are the most dedicated, hardworking people you'd ever want to meet in any profession. Right, right. So what a great <laughs> place to hide. What a great place to hide. Oh, God. If you're so inclined to murder patients right. because you're working with a group of people, the last hospital that I worked in, my God, they perform miracles every day. I mean, these people were incredible, 24-7 saving lives. So who's going to think in an atmosphere like that, in a group of people so dedicated, who have taken oaths to save lives, that somebody is intentionally taking a life? It's a terrific place to hide if you're so inclined you know, and, and if, if you think about, it, you just think about some of the reasons here. Okay, so look, if I'm, if I want to murder people, what profession and what locations might I choose? Well, let's think about it. First of all, I want to choose a place where death is a common everyday occurrence. Mm -hmm. I mean, and look, hospitals, nursing homes, uh, death is a common everyday occurrence. There's not going to be a big investigation Every time somebody expires in a hospital or, or, or a nursing home, right? It's a common everyday occurrence. And I want to work with people who are dedicated to saving lives so nobody's going to really believe or want to believe or want to believe that I'm actually there to take lives. People are just going to have a very, very hard time believing it, okay? Also, I, I want to work in a place where Maybe I could work sort of alone at night and, you know, there are no cameras and I could take that curtain and put that curtain around me and the patient and nobody could really see exactly what I'm doing. And if I want to kill, well, I don't have to smuggle in a knife or a gun because all the death-bailing chemicals I ever want are right there. Many of them on the crash cart and some of them still untraceable even with today's modern science. And you know, you know, you know what, what's so interesting I, I find about medical serial killers? If you take your traditional, if there is such a word, uh, serial killer, they kill maybe six or seven people. They're actually amateurs, amateurs compared to my medical serial killers. I'd say the average is good for at least 30, maybe somewhere, you know, 60. The number one, because people always ask me, who's the number one? The number one, Undefeated champion of medical serial killers is Dr. Harold Shipman from England. He killed about 300 patients. Oh, my God. Yeah. But there's a nurse in Germany who's coming up close second, a nurse in Germany. And something interesting about this nurse in Germany, too. This nurse in Germany, we suspect of killing about 300 patients, but he admitted to killing about 100. And this investigation was so involved they had to exhume bodies in three different countries. Oh, wow. 
three different countries because, you know, Europe, they try. And it's interesting about medical serial killers. They tend to travel from hospital to hospital to hospital. And when the first hospital suspects something, they don't really say anything to the second hospital because they're just so glad the person has left. And they don't want to be sued and, and accused of something that they can't prove. So they go, thank God that nurse Bruce is gone. We're not going to tell the second hospital what we suspected. You know, mm-hmm. We're not, not going to say that. And, you know, when I, when I give my presentations to medical staff people around the world, inevitably, somebody will come over to me and they'll say, you know, Bruce, there was this doctor or there was this nurse that we kind of suspected, but we were afraid to say anything. And we were just happy that they moved on to another hospital. So this is what creates an environment that enables medical serial killers to kill so many people. There's a nurse, Charles Cullen. Charles Cullen started in Pennsylvania and went through New Jersey and he went through about eight hospitals and every hospital suspected something but never said anything to the next hospital and never said anything to the next hospital. And that's what makes it easy for them. Right. Yeah. How do we find out about these? You know, how do we find out about it? Well, inevitably it's from the nurses and doctors who suspect something and they become whistleblowers. And let me tell you something. It takes a lot of courage to be a whistleblower. And I know, you know, the management says, oh, we support whistleblowers, blah, 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 and all that stuff. (laughs) All right. And it depends on the hospital. I mean, the last hospital I worked at, that was very, very true. But I could tell you a story about two nurses in Kermit, Texas. Now, these two nurses in Kermit, Texas were actually the entire compliance department of this small hospital. And they suspected a physician of intentionally harming patients. Right. So they went to the management and the management said, you know, you know how hard it is to find doctors here in Kermit, Texas. Why we have to go all the way to the Philippines or Ireland to find nurses here and doctors. So, you know what? If we didn't do such a great background investigation, well, excuse me, we can't find anybody to work here. And by the way, nurse, did you actually see this doctor murder anybody? Well, I didn't see him, but it seems like, for instance, every time this doctor's on duty, the death rate goes up. The doctor takes a vacation for two weeks, the death rate rate goes goes down. down. Well, that doesn't mean he's a serial killer. Maybe he has the most complex cases. Maybe there's a reason for that. And by the way, nurse, um, is your background so perfect? The reason why I'm asking you is because if you bring these allegations forward, then people are going to start questioning your background. I mean, are all, is all, all your training up to snuff? Is all your licenses up to snuff? Have you ever used any, you know, designer drugs? If we drug tested you right now, are you going to test positive or what? You see, I'm just asking you these questions. Because when you make allegations like this, well, then you're sort of under investigation yourself. Yeah, that's a terrible spot to put a nurse in. Boy, isn't that? Isn't it? So, but they're nurses and physicians with a lot of courage. And, and 
So the management says, okay, look, I tell you what we're going to do just for you, nurse, just for you. We're going to appoint the board of our very best in-house physician and nurses, and they're going to do a chart review. And they're going to come back and they're going to tell us in their opinion whether there was any foul play or not. Now, who are these people? These people are all employees of the hospital. They all report to the director of the hospital. They all have their jobs on the line. And this is what they're going to do. They'll look in the chart and they're going to say, could this patient have expired from one or more of his natural disease processes? Well, when I was looking at medical records at the VA and they were like this thick, I didn't know you could be alive and have this much wrong with you, (laughs) yet I have to prove murder. So yes, it is possible that one or more of his disease processes could have caused his death. And, And if you look at the death certificate, nurse, you'll see that the doctor signed, you know, myocardial infarction or something like that. And even in one or two cases, you know, we actually did autopsies. Now, most hospitals don't do autopsies anymore because nobody wants to pay for it. It used to be like a great tool. They don't really do it anymore. They say they don't have to do it. But a hospital autopsy was not a forensic autopsy. You know, it's sort of a confirmatory autopsy. Could the patient have expired from one or more of his disease processes? And if the answer is yes, done. So then the hospital administration will come out with this report. And they'll say, yeah, you know, it's true that every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, death rate went up, death rate down. But these are all natural deaths. So thank you very much, nurses. Go back into your little office, all right? So these two nurses now, they said, well, what the hell are we going to do? We went to management, and they told us to shut up and go back into our little office. So one nurse says, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to the Texas State Medical Board about this doctor. Because our own management doesn't want to do anything. And the doctor got wind of this, and boy, was he pissed. So he calls one of his patients who happened to be the local sheriff, and he says, Sheriff, I think these women are intentionally trying to harm my reputation. So the sheriff gets a search warrant, goes into their hospital computer, determines that they were the author of the anonymous letter, and has them arrested and charged with misuse of official information, which was a felony. The nurses get fired. They lose their jobs and everything. It goes to trial. The jury comes back and they say, what are you kidding me? These nurses deserved a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. But what kind of message does that send out to other whistleblowers out? Right. No, I agree. You hear about those two nurses in Texas? Did you hear what what they went through? And why don't you just keep your mouth shut and let's hope that uh, he or she moves on to another hospital so we don't have to go through what these nurses did. This uh, we've seen throughout the world. Throughout the world, we've seen this scenario. But one thing is different in Germany. And I must say the German police... They are very thorough, as you could imagine. They are really very thorough. The German police have actually charged the hospital management who suspected these patients of of being victims of murder and not saying anything to the next hospital when their nurse moved on. So this German nurse who admitted to over 100 murders, his managers now have been charged 
criminal. Good. They charged with aiding and abetting these murders. Will they get convicted? I don't know. I've never seen, I've never read about any managers ever being convicted. Fired? Yes. Retired? Yes. Moved on? Yes. Criminally prosecuted? No. Including my own cases, by the way. Right. Never. Never. You know, it's th- that whole situation is is such a scary one because if I think of, like you said, the traditional serial killers, I mean, for example, if we think about like someone like Ted Bundy, he was able to go about do all these murders, and that was because they didn't actually have a system where you know the police departments where he moved around, they didn't have a way to communicate with themselves. Well, it sounds like it's the same thing in the hospital situations. There's no way of us communicating when one person moves and goes to another place. So. So do we need something like a CODIS system for the hospitals? Like, what what do you think? Well, it, you know what? Yeah. You know, actually, in, in New Jersey, uh, they, they, they passed a law that indemnifies the hospitals when they suspect something of saying something. But that's very, very rare. Very rare. Because most hospitals, as you know, once an employee leaves, all they will do is verify the employee was there from this period to that period. And that's right. It. Yeah. And the fact that they they suspected him of murdering, you know, 15 patients, that is, is, is never said. Is never said. And you know, one one of the things that I often get asked is, well, what's the motivation of these people? Why are they doing this? You know, why are they killing people, particularly in, in, in this this setting, uh, and taking advantage of everybody like this? I could tell you one size does not fit all, but I can tell you what I've seen. Two really great examples of Munchausen syndrome by proxy, you know, um, also known as a factitious disorder now. They, they changed the name. I kind of like the old <laughs> name. I think it's a little cooler. Munchausen syndrome by proxy. But these people crave the excitement of a code. We used to call them code junkies. When you look in their evaluations, they were like, okay, nurses, okay, doctors, except when it came to a code, that's when they would shine. Nurse Kristen Gilbert, who we suspect of murdering about 30 patients at at the VA Medical Center in uh, Massachusetts, um, she was the person, the doctors would say, you know, God forbid if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She takes charge. She starts barking orders to the young interns who are scared out of their mind. She's terrific. They love the attention of the code. This guy in Germany, the same way from hospital, hospital, hospital. When you look at his evaluations, he was the code man. He was always there for code. He loved the code. Now with Kristen Gilbert, interestingly enough, the VA regulations required when a code was called, a VA police officer had to be there as well. This VA police officer happened to be her boyfriend. Oh. So the code became almost almost like a sexual event because they were seen like grabbing one another. She would once straddle the patient and her dress would go up and her garter belt would, would be shown. So for her... You could the excitement of the code came in many, many different ways. <laughs> God. 
and and she actually used epinephrine. She used to walk around wow. with an EpiPen, and she she used epinephrine, and and she killed these people. Interesting thing, and you you you'll read in the book. Her case was a death penalty case in a state that does not have the death penalty. Hmm. Now, how that happened is the state of Massachusetts has no death penalty, but the murders occurred at a federal hospital, a VA hospital. So the federal law pertained. So it was actually a death penalty case. And she went to trial. The trial lasted six months. It was six months long. Expert versus expert. Eyewitness versus eyewitness. And I'll tell you, the real heroes in that case were her co-worker nurses who came forth. They went to management. Management poo-pooed it. Out of frustration, they came to us. We did the investigation, and their backgrounds were not perfect. They had substance abuse issues. They had a lot of problems, but they still came forward, and they disclosed it all at the trial. You know, they just had to disclose everything at the trial. That was one hell of a trial, as you could imagine. Six months, day in, day out, witnesses, experts, and all that. Well, she was found guilty. The second phase is the death penalty phase. The death penalty phase is a second trial. It's like a mini trial after the big trial, all right? And that's very moving because that's all about the victims. That's right. when the victims and their families get to speak, all right? And we presented, you know, photos of the victims when they were in the military and how they were improving at the VA medical center only to expire unexpectedly because of, of, of Kristen Gilbert. And she actually faced the death penalty. And if she, she was given the death penalty, she would have been the first woman executed in the federal system since Ethel Rosenberg, the atomic bombs wow. uh, spy. But the jury came back and they said, no, you know, life without the possibility of parole is fine. Uh, we don't want the death penalty. We were actually happy about that because she was a mom with two kids. And, you know, we didn't really want to see the death penalty. But you wouldn't know it when you read the newspapers because they painted us as these evil Gestapo, you know, guys that wanted to just hang her by the lamppost outside and nothing like that could be further from the truth. Mm. But in so many of these cases, we just tend to forget about the victims. Here. Right. And and the victims are both the deceased and the family, you know, and the family. It's such a shock to these families because, as, as you know, and it was the, the way it was described to me, natural death is like shutting off a fan and the blades gradually slow down and stop. Right. But for these people, it was like turning off a light bulb. They were bright one minute and dark the next. In fact, with Kristen Gilbert, and you must, must read this in the book. And if you get, I hope you get the court transcript because it's worth reading. This actually did happen. Kristen Gilbert goes to her board and she says, if patient Kenneth Cutting over here should expire, let's say around 6, 6, 15 tonight, can I go home early oh my God. to meet my, my boyfriend, the VA police officer? And the supervisor says, what are you talking about? We don't expect him to expire. I suppose you could go home early if he did, but we don't expect anything like that. 
And guess what happened at 615? Oh, God. And I'm not making that up. I am not making it up. This is part of the court transcript. It was in the newspapers. That story was actually in, in the newspapers. And we didn't do such a good job doing Kristen Gilbert's background investigation either, but in large part because the other places she worked with forgot to tell us that she was under investigation for starting fires, for scolding a child, for all kinds of things. They just forgot Conveniently, to tell us huh? that. You know, when, when, yeah, when, when, when they moved her on to the VA. Wow. So it's so troubling. And inevitably, you read about these cases every couple of months. The last one at the VA was a nurse who used insulin, killed 13 patients in West Virginia. That was a couple of months ago. That's the last one. So periodically, these cases do surface. What's so sad is they don't surface after the first death or the second death. It takes five, ten deaths until somebody's finally saying something. There was a famous medical serial killer. His name is Donald Harvey. And Donald Harvey said this, this great quote. He says, after I murdered the first 15, excuse me, how many? The first 15, and no one questioned me. No one in the hospital questioned me. I started to believe I was actually ordained by God himself to do this. Wow. Oh my gosh. Not so crazy if you kill 15 people and nobody even bats an eye. None of your coworkers even take a second look at you. You know, it's not so crazy to think something uh, something is, is, is going on. And that's so troubling about medical serial killers are the number of victims. Um, and it, there, there was a nurse in, in Canada who used um, yep. insulin as well. And one in insulin is is is, yep. is one of the most common. I say insulin, and then you know succinylcholine and uh, epinephrine, uh, some of the fa- favorites. But but there are others. I mean, there are others out there. And not every serial killer gets convicted. Too. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> I think that you were referring to Elizabeth Wetlawfer with the insulin case. Uh, I'm I'm aware of yes. her committing, I think it was six or seven murders before she got caught, which for us up in Canada is a really big deal because we don't have too many medical serial killers that I'm aware of. And uh, when I was reading your book, actually, Bruce, I noticed that you had developed this uh, red flag system, almost like a way that you can look for signs of someone who may be up to no good. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, you know, how how did you come up with it? Sure. So in the book, we have 26 red flags. When situations occur like this, there are some very common factors that we see in cases all around the world. So we, we, we put them in the book. And when we speak to medical professionals, we just want them to be aware. It doesn't mean that the person is a medical serial killer because there's a couple of these red, red flags in there. What it really means is to start an investigation, to start looking and take this matter very, very serious. I, but I can tell you almost inevitably, with some exceptions, the cases start because every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. There, so a, a nurse in uh, Columbia, Missouri, that's exactly what happened. So the manager, 
department said, I have a good idea. Let's assign another nurse to work with him and watch him. So when that second nurse was there, the death rate was flat. But when that second nurse had to take a little vacation, take some time off, go home early, guess what happened? The death rate went up. So when things like this, we just can't put it aside. We have to do a very, very thorough investigation using the red flags and be very careful on who we select to do these investigations because it's a very simple conflict of interest. If you use the same staff that working at the hospital, look, what hospital wants it known that they had someone intentionally murdering patients there? And this is really a very sad story with the Kristen Gilbert case. And Kristen Gilbert in Massachusetts, and I told you how courageous those nurses were who came forward. You know, when they returned to work after the trial, they were completely ostracized by their fellow workers. They weren't looked at as heroes because they identified a medical serial killer. Just the opposite. Their coworkers said to them, do you know what you did to this hospital? You destroyed the reputation of this hospital. We could have just moved her on somewhere else, but no, you had to cause this big investigation. Now when people drive by our hospital, they point to our hospital. They don't say, hey, that's the hospital that saved all these lives. That's the hospital with these great doctors and nurses. You know what they say? That's the hospital where Kristen Gilbert worked. That's the hospital where they were killing patients. And it's all because of you, nurse whistleblowers. It's all because of you. And we're lucky we still have jobs. We're lucky this hospital is still around. And that's the kind of appreciation and thanks they got. Oh, yeah, we gave them all kinds of awards. But to be ostracized by your coworkers for that, they really went through hell. And I've seen this in other places. I told you about Texas. I mean, I've seen other places as well. It's not always that way, but more often than not, it is. So the motivation, you know, for nurses to come forward is is, is always there, but they they get scared, and I understand it, because there is a history of whistleblowers not faring well, even when they're proven right. I could tell you that's definitely a tricky situation, and kind of in what Sarah and I have been doing, actually, for the last, I'd say, probably two years is like our whole podcast is actually about, you know, calling out the truth, telling the truth, um, sharing our stories and actually whistleblowing. And I think this is a, it's a timely conversation. It's an important conversation that, you know, if we see things that may be untoward that we, we do need to speak up because at the end of the day, our job is to be dedicated to patient safety and, and better patient healthcare outcomes. But again, I, I can see that hesitation where, you know, is this person doing that or is that, you know, what should I do? And what would you say the best thing to do is in that situation? Well, you always have to try management first. You know, and you have to lay out your case to management first as well. But if you're unhappy with them and if you don't think they're doing the right thing, then I think there's little choice but to go to outside authorities. You know, there is there is little choice. I mean, the way I look at it is if my dad had been a patient there, you know, and I would hope that somebody w- would say something and would really make a difference. If you um, do some research on this topic, particularly this nurse, Richard Williams in Missouri, 
I mean, uh, two doctors and nurses went through hell complaining about this guy. Just went through hell. And um, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad. I'm optimistic, though, that things have gotten better. That there's a moral awareness now that these people do exist. Things like this can happen. And when we work together... That is the only way to solve these cases. We must work together. That's law enforcement and hospital. These wonderful forensic nurses, I say. I don't care. And I, when I speak to the cops, I always tell them this. I say, look, I don't care if you're the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes. You can't do one of these cases yourself. It's impossible. First of all, most cops don't become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology. So we need help, all right? And I always implore them to get your forensic nurses to work with the team. But these investigations are very, very expensive. Right, I'd imagine. They actually cost millions of dollars. Now, look, I was with the federal government, so we had the money. I mean, we write checks for billions and trillions, oh like, all day long. Like, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. But imagine if you're um, a small police department somewhere in some small city mm-hmm. in Canada. And you hear these allegations and you go to the management and this is what the management is going to say. They're going to say, I thank you very much, officer, for coming to this hospital and uh, telling us your concerns. And I want you to know we had the very same concerns that you had. So what we did, we appointed a board of our very best physicians and nurses and they reviewed the charts and they, they looked at the death certificates. And in one or two times, we also did autopsies. And we came to the conclusion that all these patients died as a direct result of their right. natural disease processes. Now, if you want to challenge that, well, go right ahead, officer. But here's the report. This is what we have. And I could tell you that 99% of the police departments are going to just turn around and say, thank mm-hmm. you very much. And that's another reason why they get away with this for so long. Because... Police don't even want to do yeah. investigations in hospitals. First of all, they don't understand the science. They don't understand the administration. They don't understand the law. In America, we have this HIPAA law, you know, this Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And they say, oh, what documents can we get? What documents can't we get? Do we need a subpoena? Do we need a court order? Am I allowed to look at this? Is this something I can't look at? This is so confusing. I don't really want to bother with this. And we have this nice report saying everything's fine. Wow. I mean, this is, I think this is very interesting stuff. And I just want to stress to our listeners again that it is very rare right. to find a nurse or a doctor who is a, a murderer, nevertheless um, a serial killer. But Bruce, do you have any sense, like with statistics, how common or uncommon it is to find a healthcare provider that murders? I would say extremely mm-hmm. uncommon, extremely uncommon, because like I say, the overwhelming majority are just right. the salt <laughs> of the earth. I can't say enough nice things about them. But every, look, I've arrested a number of nurses in, in my career, you know, for stealing drugs and doing other things. But I can tell you, I found out about them. From all the honest, hardworking, dedicated right. nurses who told me about them. Otherwise, I, I would have never known for the most part. Yeah, we have all these programs that check pharmacies and, you you know, and check what drugs are withdrawn and all, all of that. But the overwhelming majority of cases, 
came from nurses who saw something, suspected something, and reported it. So it's very rare, but it does exist. And all I ask people is to be aware, know the red flags, and if you see something, say something, because periodically these cases do surface. And the scary part is they don't surface until five, six, seven, ten people have actually mm-hmm. killed, been killed. You know? Are there any other cases that you feel that, you know, are, are in action right now or anything that you might be able to talk about that you think that hasn't been settled with at all, Bruce? Well, I can tell you there are a couple of cases in action right now as we speak. All right, let's hear them. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, I really can't say. I mean, there, there's there's one in there, there's one in Texas. There's one upstate New York. Um, insulin is involved in one of them. I know that you, you, you're not surprised to hear that. And there are other cases going on in, in other parts of the world. But again, it's a tiny, tiny minority, tiny, tiny minority compared to all the interactions with all the nurses throughout the world. It's such a tiny number that, uh, look, I people say, oh, Bruce, you must be afraid to go in the hospital. I said, no, just the opposite. I'm not afraid to go in the hospital because for every bad nurse I met, I met hundreds of fantastic, outstanding nurses and, and physicians. So, but it, it does exist. And if we're aware of it and if we face it and do a proper investigation and hopefully we'll find out that they're not intentionally mm-hmm. killing people, that maybe there's some other medical reason behind it. So I, I would do paper. Don't use this, say, oh, I'm never right. going to go in the hospital again. No, 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 no. Believe me, the percent, I can't even put a percentage on mm-hmm. it. It's so small. But what makes it so terrible is when they do exist, how many I mean, we talk about 100 victims. We talk yeah. about 300 victims. You know, that's what makes these things so, so in- mm-hmm. inc- incredible. Yep. And we are supposed to be the most trusted and respected profession. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce, for coming on today. And thank you for all of the investigative work you've done, you know, bringing these murderers to trial and convicting them. I just wanted to let all our listeners know about your book. It's uh, Behind the Murder Curtain. Bruce, where can people find you or where can they buy the book if they're interested? Well, there's a website uh, with the same name, BehindTheMurderCurtain.com. And you can get the book on Amazon or just about anywhere. If you do get it, I'd appreciate if people would put a little review, you know, either on Amazon or Goodreads or or one of the things. Because I I enjoy getting the feedback. And, you know, feel free to email me anytime, contact me at any time. For me, this is an ongoing exercise. You know, even though I had retired from the, from the VA in 2005, and then I was a director of internal investigations for a very large hospital system in New York City for 15 years, and, and then I retired from that. So now I've kind of dedicated myself to this one particular field and traveling around the world and lecturing to medical professionals and to police, just an awareness Because if we're all aware of it, we'll all be that much safer and better. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us these stories. And yeah, we nurses need to have greater awareness of these things. And I mean, like you said, if you see something, say something. So thanks so much again, Bruce. You're very welcome. Thank you very much.